And so if you turn to me, please, to Philippians chapter 3, um, verses 1 to 11. I believe, I I believe it's on page 1080, 1080 in the church Bibles. Um, other Bibles do have other pages. So please turn to that, and we will start reading from verse 1. All right, further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. But it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If uh, someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, Becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Lord, we thank you so much that your word is truth. Thank you that it is ultimate truth, and that it is living and it's active and it speaks to us, Lord. So I pray that today, that um, my words would come from you, that what's not from you would just disappear and go and wouldn't be heard. But Lord, we pray that what is from you would be heard. Lord, we pray your spirit would speak to us and that you would change us, and you would help us love you more. Amen. Well, in a a relatively recent government poll, they don't seem to have done some recently, but in 2015, um, a government poll showed that 48% of British people think that they're going to heaven. 10% believe they're going to hell, and the others don't believe in an afterlife. Now, the poll doesn't tell us their reasons why, but I think we can probably hazard a guess as why some people think that they're going to heaven. I remember having a conversation with my granddad not long before he passed away, and his thinking was, I'm a good person. I've not hurt anybody. I've done good things. I think if there is a God, he'll be pleased with me. Well, today, Paul is speaking to anybody who thinks that that question of, am I going to heaven, the answer starts with an I. The Many people think that if they just do a good enough things, if they're, they're good, outweighs their bad on the scales, they're going to be okay. Basically saying, I'll, I'll be acceptable to God, if they're whoever the higher being is. And it's through their own works. But, but the Bible says clearly, the Bible says this clearly, our own works are worthless. Our own works are worthless. But the righteousness that we receive from Christ is priceless. And righteousness is that quality of being made morally right. 
being justifiable. But we can't buy it. We can't buy it. So my prayer for today for us is that if you're someone that has been walking with Jesus for a long time, I pray that we do not slip back into thinking at any point that we can earn God's love through what we do, through how we are. We do not earn our position in God's family. It's been given to us. But maybe there's some of us here today that haven't bowed our knee to the Lord, that we haven't said that Jesus is our one and only saviour. My prayer for you today is that you will see that your goodness, anything that is good in you, is worthless in comparison to receiving Jesus Christ. He alone can be our righteousness. So hopefully that's what we'll see in our time in the scriptures today. Well, if you look at verse 1 with me, please, first of all, we see basically from Paul, his encounter with Christ has been that he has learned just how much he needs Jesus' righteousness. He's learned the worth of Christ, and I think we've got a lot to learn from him today. So hopefully we will see all this. Well, first of all, in verse 1, we see that Paul tells us, he tells the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Well, just a couple of weeks ago, I was chatting with Di Hankey, some of you may know, this passionate Welsh pastor that has preached here a few times and um, has, uh, runs uh, that coffee roasting uh, business that we get the coffee from, uh, Manumit Coffee. He's a lovely guy, and I saw him a couple of weeks ago, and I basically said thank you to him for a sermon that he preached about five years ago here at Oikos, and where he, he said these words. He said, we need to be experts at seeing evidences of grace in each other's lives. And I remember that, and I've used it probably in pretty much every other sermon that I preach. And I just said, well, thanks, Dan, but... Basically, I say that every week at my church. I just have one sermon that I preach every week, and I make it look a bit different. And he's saying, look, there's only one gospel. Good news. And Paul's saying a similar thing here. He says, further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. In fact, it's a safeguard for you. It's great that Paul doesn't get sick of saying the same thing. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the In the Lord, it's part of the gospel, isn't it? And it's a safeguard for them. It's a protection for them because they need to hear this. They need to know that they can rejoice in the Lord, especially in the circumstances that they're going through. We know the Philippians are facing opposition from similar to what Paul faced 14 years previously when he planted the church. They're facing opposition to bow the knee to Caesar. And he's saying, don't look at your circumstances. Don't look at whether they're good or whether they're bad. Just rejoice in the Lord no matter what. No matter what your circumstances are, because your circumstances will change. Just rejoice in the Lord. And again, I will say rejoice. It got me thinking that having walked with the Lord now for 19, 18, 19 years, I, I can sometimes feel that the fear might be for some of us that similarly have known Jesus for a long time, we can become immune to hearing the good news each and every week, can't we? It's almost as if we've been triple vaccinated to the gospel, that we hear it so often that we come immune to hearing it, and it doesn't bring us the same joy that when we first heard it. Paul's saying, no, rejoice in this same message that you hear each and every week. Rejoice, and it's a safeguard for you. It's going to keep you safe, because look, if you look at um, verse 2, he's basically telling them, look out for those who would have you rejoice in anything else. Look out for anybody that has you rejoice or tempts you to rejoice in anything else other than Jesus Christ. You see, the Jewish converts that had come to Christianity were 
promoting both Judaism and Christianity at the same time. They were basically saying you need a bit of Jesus and a little bit of legalism. You need to keep the rules. You need to keep the law. A little bit of grace and a lot of works. Works is saying I have to do good things to get into God's good books, to be in his family, to be saved. Grace saying there's nothing that you can do. You just rely on Jesus. They don't mix, do they? Grace and legalism do not mix. They were out to have people rejoice in other things and not rejoice in Christ. Rejoice in their goodness and what they do. Jesus plus gospel. Paul writes about it a lot in the other letters. He faces up to the Jesus plus gospel, Jesus plus something else. And he tells them, look, look out for the dogs. He says, look out for the dogs. Now, we know dogs are lovely and cuddly, Judy, don't we? They're wonderful things. But back then... They were not seen as very popular. They were impure. Um, impure. They were um, basically scavengers. And it's what the Jews called the Gentiles. It was their name for the Gentiles, an insult for them. And Paul's flipping on his head here, saying, no, 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 no. The dogs are the Jewish people that are trying to say, it's Jesus plus. It's not Jesus plus. You've got to look out for those dogs that are telling you it's other things. Look out for the evildoers, he says. The false teachers were also teaching righteousness of the law. In other words, they were teaching that salvation comes through keeping rituals and keeping laws. And then he particularly, as he does in Galatians, he goes after mutilators of the flesh. He says it. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Because... Jews thought that circumcision was what, meant, was what meant they had salvation. Paul saying, no, it's nothing more than mutilating the flesh. It doesn't make you part of God's family. Not anymore. And it was, God's plan was, it was um, circumcision was what they had to do on the eighth day. But, but, then he was, but then now the law has been fulfilled in Christ. You do not need to mutilate the flesh like that anymore. Is not your identity. But it was the very heart of who they were. It would have been so difficult for them. Look what he says in Galatians 5 to, to, to face it. To, he says this to the Galatians. He says, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated now to keep the law, the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law... You have fallen away from grace. But through the Spirit, by faith, we are ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. But in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith, working through love. You see, Paul is not saying that it's wrong to be circumcised, but he's saying it's wrong to think that circumcision is what saves you. You're keeping the law. It won't achieve any type of righteousness, not the righteousness that Christ has to offer. But I think we too just need to be on the lookout and watch to see anyone preaching a Jesus plus gospel. I think in our society, in our culture, there's a Jesus plus going to church every week, isn't there? I go to church every week. That's what makes me a Christian. Or the Jesus plus, you must have prosperity in your life. Your life doesn't look prosperous or good. You're not doing things right. But even for us, I was 
convicted by this this week, that we must be careful too, that even though we are um, evangelical Christians who we know the gospel, we love Jesus Christ, and we don't, we seemingly don't uh, put on anything else other than Jesus Christ. We don't say Jesus Christ plus anything, but maybe sometimes we think in our heads, Jesus plus your life looking a little bit more like my life or our life. Jesus plus your life looking sorted. Maybe we push that a little bit too much. But Paul in verse 3 makes it clear that the church are the true people of God, are the true Jews. The church, we, those that love Jesus, are the true people of God, the true Jews. Paul declares that a true Jew is someone who places no confidence in circumcision or works of the law to achieve righteousness. It is the, the church, those who simply have faith in Jesus, that is, that is our only means of salvation. He gives three distinguishing marks of Christians, of people that true people of God, the church. He says this, those who serve by the Spirit of God, we who serve by the Spirit of God, not through works. What he means here is he's talking about a life of spiritual service. We who live our lives wholly for Jesus Christ, that is a sign of being his people. Those of us that have received the Holy Spirit that help us live lives worthy of the gospel. But he also says those that boast, boast in Christ Jesus and him alone. He's, he speaks against the thinking that we can boast in our own performance. How often do we do that? But we can only, those of us that only boast in Jesus Christ, a sign that we are his, that we are the true church, the true Jew. And then finally he says those that place no confidence in the flesh. They're confident in ourselves, in our position, in who we are. And he goes, and I will talk about this in a minute, but, but he gives seven reasons, I believe, six or seven reasons why he can boast in the flesh, why he can have confidence in the flesh, but why he doesn't. You see, everything we do that tries to earn God's favour only takes us further away in the other direction. When we Go into that thinking. We can earn God's favour. It takes us further away from him. The reason is because we do that apart from Christ. And to think that we can earn our salvation means that we're only seeing our sin as relatively minor. When we think that we can earn our salvation, we downplay our sin and we don't see it as a problem. You see, we need to remember that our sin has placed a dividing wall between us and God. And it's an unscalable dividing wall that we cannot climb, and we keep trying to climb it, don't we? But we can't do it. Only Christ can achieve that righteousness that God requires. And we are to boast in him alone, not in our own efforts. Well, just this past week, we had our first Bible study of who is Jesus anyway in the cafe on Monday. And Nikki took us through um, uh, Luke chapter 7 and the sinful, sinful woman, a story that many of you will be aware of, where the sinful woman comes to Simon the Pharisee's house. First of all, it's striking that she comes into a Pharisee's house, this, this woman of disrepute. But she's so broken for her sin, her, she wets Jesus' feet with her tears. 
She washes them with her hair. She washes them with perfume. And she kisses Jesus' feet. One of my favorite stories in the Bible, true stories in the Bible. And Simon, the Pharisee, by contrast, what does he do? He doesn't give Jesus any honor. Doesn't anoint him at all because doesn't recognize him even as a prophet. But she recognizes who Jesus is. She recognizes that he's the only one that can forgive her sins truly. Simon thinks that because he's a, a Pharisee, a religious leader, thinks that he keeps the law, that he's okay. He's not sinful. And yet, the woman that leaves in peace, the person that leaves in peace is the woman. Her sins are forgiven. And then the final question Nikki asked us was, who do you relate more to, the Pharisee or the woman? I have to say, I was really struck by this this week. I just felt so much like a Pharisee. So much like someone that thinks that I'm not that bad. My sins are actually relatively minor. In the grand scheme of things, they're not terrible compared to what other people do. But actually, not true at all, is it? Maybe some of you can echo that feeling with me. But you see, this is the same miscalculation that before Paul knew Jesus, it's the same miscalculation that Paul made. It's the same miscalculation that we all make. And we see his grave miscalculation in verses 4 to 6. Look with me at that, please. He says this, Though I myself have reasons for such confidence... If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, righteousness based on the law, I'm faultless. If anyone should think that they are righteous or have earned it, there's no one else other than Paul that you think would have earned that. Paul thinks his pedigree and his keeping the law made him good enough to gain God's favor. Paul's saying, don't put your trust in those things. I have reason to, but don't put your trust in those things. Don't put your confidence in those things. He says, don't put your confidence in, uh, because, um, in your rituals. Circumcised on the eighth day. It was a thing that Jewish people did to their children, wasn't it? They were circumcised on the eighth day to be part of God's family. And I think similarly in our culture... In our society, we have this thing where many people get their children christened, don't they? Now, I'm not against people have christenings, but, but when people think that it saves their child, just in case. I've been to so many Christians of my, uh, christenings of my friends' children who don't believe in faith. The only time they go to church is for, for, <laughs> to christen their children. And they've said to me, well, it's just in case there is a God, just in case, show him favour. Maybe we're sitting here today thinking we're relying upon having water sprinkled over us at the age of six months old. That makes us part of God's family. Paul says, I was of the people of Israel. He's saying, don't put your confidence in your ethnicity. 38% of people tick a box on the census to say that they're a Christian in this country. 38%. We'd love that to be the case, wouldn't we? But, But... we know full well that many of them aren't walking with the Lord. Just because they're in the UK or part of the, British, uh, part of the United Kingdom doesn't make them a Christian, doesn't make us a Christian. We can't rely on our ethnicity. Paul says, don't have confidence in your rank. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. Out of the 12 tribes, it was one of the leading tribes. 
of the, the 12 tribes of Israel. It was where it produced the first king, Saul, came from that line. Maybe sometimes we can think because we live in the top 3% of the wealthiest people and the most educated people in the world, that makes us have God's favour. We can look down on others, think that we're better. It's like, no, don't have any confidence in your rank. Don't have it in your tradition. He, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Don't have it in your rule-keeping. He was a Pharisee. Don't have confidence in your rule-keeping. Don't think that because you do good things, you're a moral person, that makes you right with God. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more if you're already in his family. <clears throat> nothing. Nothing good, nothing bad that you can do to make him love you more or love you less. And then we know Paul was one of the most zealous people that ever lived. He was zealous for Judaism, wasn't he? He persecuted Christians. And yet salvation does not come through our passion. We have passions about many things, don't we? But, but the only thing that we can be passionate about really should be, well, loads of things, but especially Jesus Christ. Salvation comes from knowing the real man that had zeal, a zeal for us, a zeal for you, a zeal to save you from your sins. We think that his, his gain column would look like this previously, before he knew Christ. There was nothing in his lost column. Everything was gained to him. Who he was, what he did, his identity was all gained to him. Just like Simon the Pharisee. But at this point he had no idea how evil his sins were and just how righteous Christ is and how desperately he needs the righteousness that Christ gives us. But can I ask you the question, what would be in your gain column? What would you place in there at this moment? Would it be your wealth? Would it be your popularity? Would it be your family? Your job? Achievements? These are all good, not bad things in other themselves. But if they're everything in your gain, you count them as gain as the most important thing, and you lose them, how does it make you feel? You see, for Paul, all these achievements that he'd made, he boxed them up and he moved them into the rubbish bin in comparison to knowing Christ. As Nicky read the story of the merchant sold everything and gave it all up and counted it as rubbish for the sake of knowing Christ. Because Christ has surpassing worth in verses 7 to 11 we see. Paul discovered who he really was. He discovered his terrible miscalculation. He thought he was some sort of saint, some super religious law keeper, but in reality his works and all his righteousness were worthless. And then at this point, of course, we're left wondering, what can we do to merit the righteousness that God requires? What can we do to merit the righteousness that God requires? Because God's requirement is perfect righteousness. No one has that. How do we get it? And I love this. Look at this. Um, In fact, here we go. (laughs) I love this. There's this in verse 9. And be found in him. That's it. You stop there. And be found in Christ. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, 
but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. That's it. That is it. Found in Christ. Found in him. Paul is so convinced that Christ is the answer to his dilemma that he counts everything as loss. Well, that didn't here. It says, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. And I consider them garbage. As we know, that basically poo. He, he sees them as garbage and poo and rubbish that I may gain Christ. I think what we need to realize is and remember and enjoy is the fact that the less we value our own righteousness, the more of Christ that we get. The less we value our own good efforts, the more of Christ that we get. Sometimes these things can feel a little bit, what's the word when they're out there? Simon, help me out. Anyway. Eh? Yes, that's the word. A little bit abstract. And so I, I wanted just to, to finish with looking at um, some practical ways in which what does it mean to really count things as loss? What does it mean to count things as loss? The surpassing worth of Christ. And so John Piper um, really helpfully gives four ways in which it means to count all things as loss. So these are his, they're not mine, so um, write them down, they're very good. Um, he says this, number one, Counting all as loss means that if we must choose between Christ and anything else, we will choose Christ. That if we must choose between Christ and anything else, we'll choose Christ. Now, we may not be put into the position of where we face a crisis, where we have to make this decision. But it's if we have this resolve in our heart already that whatever happens, we're going to choose Christ first and foremost. Well, secondly, he says that counting all as loss means that we will deal with everything in ways that draw us nearer to Christ so that we gain more of Christ and enjoy more of him by the way we relate to everything. So it's a bit of a mouthful, that is. Counting all as loss means that we will deal with everything in ways that draw us nearer to Christ so that we gain more of Christ and enjoy more of him by the way we relate to everything. Basically, we will embrace everything pleasant by being thankful to Christ, and then we'll endure hardship and hurtful things by being patient through Christ. Not blaming Christ, but being patient through Christ and enduring through him. But then thirdly, he says, counting all as lost means that we will seek to deal with the things of this world in ways that show they're not our treasure, but rather that Christ is our treasure. Holding things loosely, sharing things generously, ascribing value to things in relation to Christ. I've been wrestling with this this week. What do I really treasure more than Christ? What is my heart showing at the moment? What does my life show at the moment that I'm treasuring more than Christ? I have to say there's a few things I've been looking at and battling with this week. And I encourage you to do the same. 
Where is your first treasure at the moment? Something that you're valuing more than Jesus. We all do it from time to time. It's good to recognize it, and it's good to fight it and battle it with what is true. The wonderful treasure and righteousness received in Christ. And then fourthly, it's getting smaller and smaller on the screen. Hopefully you can see it. It says, I can't see it on the screen at the back there. Um, Counting all as lost means that if we lose any of or all the things this world can offer, we will not lose our joy or our treasure or our life. When that job is taken away, that role, when that money disappears, when things don't quite work out how you want them to, does it rob you of joy? Does it rob you of rejoicing in the Lord? Your children don't quite achieve what you'd like them to achieve. Counting all as lost means that if we lose any of all those things, we will not lose our joy. We don't want to lose our joy, do we, guys? Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Column changes, doesn't it, for, for Paul. His gain is solely Jesus Christ. Everything else is as loss for him. Everything else is as loss. When he received Christ's righteousness, when we received the righteousness of Christ on our conversion, we believe in him. We cannot earn our salvation, guys. Not by keeping the law. All we can do is rest on the finished work of Christ. It is he who kept the law perfectly. His righteousness is now our righteousness. It's what God requires. It's been given to us. And all we have to do is use faith, our faith. And our faith is our hand that reaches out to accept God's free gift of salvation. And if there is a day in your life that you've not received that, can I ask you to reach out now and accept that free gift of salvation. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, it's on offer for you. And all faith is, is take, reaching out and taking it. Our righteousness is worthless, guys. Christ's righteousness is priceless. Let's not forget that this week. I just want us to spend a few moments now, just in the quiet, your own, um, on your own. I'm going to hand out some sheets with these questions on. Um, and... I'm not, you don't have to get all through, through them in five minutes, but just have a start at looking at this. There's just some questions there that say, what is it that you're tempted to hold on to in order for God to accept you? What are the things that you really hold dearly to think, oh, I am good enough because I do this, this, and this. What do you need to release? I won't read all the questions. There's quite a lot, but I'll hand these out. Ben, do you mind just sticking on some music in the background? Is that possible? Just some quiet music. And we'll just spend five minutes working our way through these questions. You may only get to question one, and that's fine, but do take these away and dwell on this. But before we do that, I'm just going to pray for us as we do that. Father God, we want to thank you so much for your son Jesus. Thank you that the great dividing wall has been torn down. We no longer have to try and climb to get up it, but Christ's righteousness has been given to us. We are made right, morally right, justifiable in your eyes because of your son. Not through anything that we do, not through anything that we can do, But Lord, out of our love for you, I pray that we would see everything else as rubbish. That we would see the surpassing worth of knowing your son, Jesus Christ. And that we would rejoice in him daily. 
each and every moment. That would be a safeguard to keep us from falling, to keep us from looking anywhere else. Lord, let us rejoice in the Lord daily. Amen.